0: How did a 1939 spy comedy movie help warn people around the world of the increasing role of Nazism? We'll discover how as we dig into the movie Q-Planes, also known as Clouds Over Europe. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri.
1: And Tom Pizzotto.
0: Of SpymovieNavigator.com. Join us as we're cracking the code of spy movies. Today, Q-Planes. Tell your friends about our podcast and give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app.
1: All right, we have a winner of our first giveaway for the DB5 key ring. This was the Leave Us a Voicemail giveaway that we did. Whee! Steve Tom- All right! <laughs> Steve Tomlinson from Canada. We also know him as Eddie. He's our first winner. Congratulations, Steve. Let's hear what he suggested as a topic for a future podcast. Hi, guys. This is Eddie from Montreal, Canada. I just wanted to say I really enjoy the podcast, especially the recent episodes about No Time to Die. Uh, it's been more than four years since the release of Spectre, so may- maybe something you might uh, want to consider discussing is the entire story arc of the Daniel Craig Bond films, and how that story arc is such a radical departure from the rest of the Bond canon. All the best, and keep up the good work. We like that topic. One we'll work on and release as a lead-in to the November release of No Time to Die.
0: So let's get back to the movie, Cuplanes. Plains. This 1939 British spy comedy movie stars Ralph Richardson as Charles Hammond, Laurence Olivier as Tony McVeigh, and Valerie Hobson as Kay Lawrence. It was directed by Tim Whalen.
1: Interestingly, this movie has been called a spy comedy movie, and while there are comic gags going on the whole time, it's really highlighting not much more than six months before World War II that the Nazis were something to be dealt with and should be taken seriously. The British were already believing this, but the American release of this movie called Clouds Over Europe was probably to open up the eyes of the Americans who had not been taking Nazism very seriously up to that point. Now, if you look for this movie online and you go to IMDB, it's under Clouds Over Europe. If you go to YouTube, it's under Q Planes."
0: Okay, so that's good. Now, there's different openings in both of these versions of the movie, though, right, Tom?
1: the opening of the American version of the film clouds over Europe was originally more sinister as it started off with pictures of scenes of London and an announcer advising what a difficult time the empire was having with safety and trade as clouds of war appeared near the change was a direct way of England trying to gain support from the neutral United States. Now this version clouds over Europe actually came out, after the original Q planes with this different opening.
0: Right, and these are both British productions, so there wasn't an American production of this, right? So That's correct. So that's why the, the British were trying to influence the neutral, still neutral United States uh, here. So the movie is really a balance between a very serious subject matter, the movement of Nazism, and we're going to see that in the film, and it includes high tech gadgets in a 1930s film, which is. You gotta cool.
1: love gadgets in a spy movie.
0: Yeah, and this is some big stuff in a 1930s film. Yeah, and there's of course, some pretty
1: cool stuff in this thing.
0: As Thomas says, there's some comic relief here, especially with the one, one character, Major Charles Hammond, played by Ralph Richardson. Uh, this kind of gives us a little break every now and then, kind of like Bond films where you get a little quip here and there that kind of breaks the tension. A and so on. It gives uh, us, as a viewer, a little a little relief from the tension and, in the movie.
1: And speaking of Bond, there's actually an actor in this film named Ian Fleming.
0: Yeah, that was funny I mean, seeing that. That was cool. It's right.
1: not. It's obviously not the James Bond, Ian Fleming author. It's a British actor. He actually was in over a hundred British films, and played Doctor Watson in a series of the Sherlock Holmes movies in the 30s. Yeah, In the that, 1930s. That, that
0: was fun to see that. A couple other things, too, before we get into the plot and unfolding of the plot of the movie. According to IMDb, Patrick McNee admitted that his portrayal of John Steed in The Avengers was in many respects based on Sir Ralph Richardson's performance as Major Charles Hammond in this movie. He plays a very classy, dapper man here who almost is always carrying an umbrella, so that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that is. You gotta like it when somebody takes what you did in a in a movie and says, Okay, I'm gonna kinda base a lot of what I do with my my acting of this character based on what you did in your movie. Yeah. That's so, a really high praise.
0: So here a movie in nineteen thirty nine is, is going to impact a TV show decades later. Also, one well, of the one of the writers for this was Jack Whittingham. Okay. Now, this is nineteen thirty nine, right? <laughs> We, we know Jack Whittingham, right? If you're a Bond fan, you kind of know about Jack Whittingham. This was his first credited screenplay. So we know this story of him with relation to Ian Fleming and Thunderball. After collaborating on the story with Kevin McClory and Fleming, Fleming wrote the novel Thunderball and credited only himself. <laughs> and there was Oops. lawsuits. That was a mistake. Yeah, and it was finally settled a long time after. But anyway, here's Jack Whittingham in his first credited screenplay.
1: And in a nod to future spy movies, there's a sign on the door of the place where the police first meet Major Hammond. And it says, Eastern Importations Company. Now, Ian Fleming used universal exports for the first time in his second book, Live and Let Die. Which was published in
0: 1954.
1: Right, but Exports was singular, not plural. Uh In Moonraker, it's Universal Export Company. And then starting with Dr. No in the movies, it's all plural through there. But you also see in other spy movies, you'll see you know something Export or Import Company Mm -hmm. as kind of a cover for whatever they're doing.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. And there's also, like Tom was mentioning before, there is some comic stuff in here again. There's two running gags in this movie helping solidify this comic element to it. Major Hammond is constantly misplacing his umbrella. We see later he has a lot of them. He has a lot of
1: umbrellas. Yeah,
0: (laughs) And after each event in the movie, Major Hammond calls a woman named Daphne to postpone a date. He often calls long after the date was supposed to occur, uh, and she tells him that she has something very important to tell him, and we never know what that is. So these couple of well, guys... Well, you
1: find out at the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, we'll We're we not going
1: to give it away, but you find out at the end.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these things are running through the whole movie. So it's kind of fun. Anyway, Q Planes is a movie definitely worth a view. It's only about 78 minutes long. It's available for free. Uh, we we have it on Amazon Prime here in the U.S. and, it, and other places you could find it for free. It's a unique early spy comedy movie. Maybe the first spy comedy movie but it is more spy than comedy, dealing with a very serious topic. And if you are a spy movie fan, you gotta see q Planes because this film does have an impact on future spy movies, especially some Bond films, and maybe even Mission Impossible. q Planes is about the British developing a supercharger for their warplanes in 1939, just before World War II begins. The development of the supercharger is top secret and must be tested on plane flights. So they actually have to go out and do this. They must keep the supercharger information and the device itself out of enemy hands. And so these tests are done secretly, top secretly. So this is the setup for the movie.
1: And the supercharger itself is something called a MacGuffin. We've talked about this before. Most spy movies, especially Hitchcock movies, have a MacGuffin. The first one I can think of is the 39 steps in the movie with the same title. Then many spy movies from From Russia With Love to the Mission Impossible movies use a MacGuffin. So the MacGuffin is the thing in the movie that's really what everybody is after, but doesn't really do anything for the plot itself. So in this movie, it's the supercharger. We never see it. We don't know exactly what it does. It looks like yeah. it's going to make a plane go faster, but okay. you don't see. You never see it, and it really doesn't matter. The thing, the supercharger being there, is the important point, and everybody has to go after that.
0: Yeah, it, so, yeah. It offers what the needed focus to the action because of it. Whatever this thing is, that's the whole focus of the movie.
1: Yeah. Ex- exactly. So yeah, Major cool. Hammond's job is to ensure that it the MacGuffin doesn't fall into enemy hands.
0: Yeah. And here it's the supercharger
1: and here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So major Charles Hammond he's from a British intelligence office is assigned to the case to see what's happening. Test planes have disappeared with sensitive equipment and they can't afford for the supercharger to be aboard these missing planes. There's been no debris found. So you've got planes that have gone missing and there's no debris They've mysteriously disappeared.
0: Yeah, that's the interesting setup to this whole thing. So now you're kind of intrigued with the movie. It's like, okay, these things are happening. They've got the supercharger. they got to hide. they got planes that are disappearing, and they find no debris, which is bizarre. So now we're all wondering what the heck is going on here. This guy, uh, played by Lawrence Olivier, Tony McVane, is one of these test pilots, and he becomes suspicious, as does Hammond, as to what's really happening here to these planes because they can't find any debris from the crashes so they find out that there's a mole working for Barrett and Ward they're the plane manufacturers ah so now this whole thing is becoming spy-like and very interesting to see what's going to happen next now Q planes is an odd name for a movie I mean there actually is a Q branch in the British intelligence services and I'm thinking maybe these Q planes with the super secret supercharger is a product of Q-Branch, much like the Q-Boat was in The World is Not Enough, but that, that that's never boat detailed. Was
1: fun. That's that fun. That boat was fun. Yeah, that's never <laughs> detailed
0: here. But we think it really has more to do with Q-ships used in World War One as freighters, which were decoys to draw out the U-boats, and then the Q-ships would reveal their guns and blast away at the U-boats. We'll have more on that in another podcast.
1: All right, so let's kind of go through the movie kind of almost scene by scene then. We've given the premise of the movie. Let's kind of go through scene by scene and talk about how it opens up and keep going. Okay. It, and, and it really opens with a really weird scene with Charles Hammond is found in an office of the Eastern Importation Company on a couch and the police barge in. Yeah. For some reason, he fakes amnesia and they finally clear it up that he's Major Charles Hammond working on some sort of British intelligence, but not until they got him to the police station.
0: Yeah. Was he faking it because he was drunk? Or was it, it It almost seemed like they he was drunk and passed out from drinking or something, and they didn't want to, I don't know. Yeah, it, it I couldn't was unclear. Figure. <laughs> it, it was, was
1: unclear, but yeah. I think part of it was it showed you he was quirky. Yeah. Because he okay. definitely is quirky. Yeah. So he's assigned as an undercover agent to the manufacturing plant of the planes, Barrett and Ward, to find out what might be going on from the inside. And then at the 8.57 mark of the movie, it is said, unofficially, of course, you understand, I'll give you every facility, but if he finds you out, you're acting against instructions. Mm. Boy, where have we heard something like that? So this is his boss, Charles's boss, talking to him about the mission he's being put on. Yeah. And that really brings us back to the Mission Impossible TV show and the movie series. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. So did this line in Mission Impossible get its birth from the movie, Q Planes?
0: Well, the, here's the interesting thing too is, now this is, this is 1939, so it may be, it may very well be what you just said, but in 1959 movie too, Operation Amsterdam, there's a similar line to all of this, and the guy, the spy, is going off to Amsterdam, and and he's told, if caught, we cannot help you. So it's been used twice before Mission Impossible got around in the 60s. So maybe these one or two or both of these have influenced Mission Impossible.
1: And I love Hammond's response. Hammond's response is rooted in the real world events as well. He replies to the order with the phrase, the Nelson touch. Oh, yeah,
0: which is bizarre because I didn't know what it meant.
1: I didn't know what it meant, but it was one of those when I heard him say it, I had to look it up because I knew there had to be some significance to it. Of course. (laughs) So the term, the Nelson touch, has its roots back to Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson, the British naval commander in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Okay. He had a signal. England expects that every man will do his duty. And during the Napoleonic Wars, Nelson outlined his plan of attack for one battle, which he termed the Nelson Touch. Hmm. This plan became an order, which was issued to the fleet, and it involved crushing the enemy, not just crippling him. You had to crush him. Okay. The enemy's line was to be broken in two places, with massive confusion revolting from these penetrations. Now, that doesn't really seem to fit what Hammond has been given as a directive.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, well... Geez, how, how, why is he saying the so, Nelson type
1: So I've read a few different articles that have different interpretations on this term. Uh, they all agree it started then, but it kind of morphed over time. Okay. And Nelson himself used it on more than one occasion. So initially it was about the plan for the sea battle. However, it later changed to mean his leadership style. Lexico.com defines it as a masterly or sympathetic approach to a problem.
0: Okay, that makes a little more sense then.
1: So it's it's fun to catch these these phrases from a movie yeah. that's from seventy years ago, and go like, "Where did that come from?" Yeah, and, and it's, it's easy to back miss and...
0: these things as they're going, as the dialogue's going. It's it's yeah. easy to miss this subtle stuff.
1: But it's really a real world kind of uh, intervention into this movie. Yeah. All right, back to the movie.
0: Yeah. All right. There's these test flights going on with sensitive equipment aboard, and we don't know what the other sensitive equipment is, but. There was sensitive equipment aboard these test flights, and they're secret. Hammond brings someone to the airfield and receives a note that says, Supercharger is enemy's objective. They may know of proposed flight from secret agent here. Whoa. All right.
1: There's a lot in that.
0: Yeah. So now we got to figure out what's really happening here so we know there was no debris found we we know all of this other stuff going on but now we know there might be an agent working somewhere here who's tipping things off or something we don't know but this note was now the setup really for the rest of the movie
1: and so, really verifying that there's an enemy that it's not a yeah it's a problem with the planes or whatever
0: yeah well we, we don't know exactly what's happening yet but we know that the enemy is aware of the proposed test flights And though we don't know who the enemy is or who the secret agent is, who is working on behalf of this enemy.
1: That's why they're secret.
0: Yeah, that's why they're secret. (laughs) So this scene gives us a clandestine message exchange and tells us the plot. The message exchange is done using a note wrapped around a cigarette following the classic, do you have a cigarette or a light that we have seen in (laughs) A lot of spy movies. movies right? Seen that, right? <laughs> yeah, spies trying to talk with each other in code. This is like I don't know, a lot of movies.
1: Pretty much most of them. <laughs> this
0: spy will come me from the cold. Or mission the mission Impossible. Mission, mission Impossible. Numerous.
1: born uh,
0: Bond films too. and born Yeah, yeah. Lot, lots of stuff. But hey, in real life, spies do this kind of stuff. So there's this cafe on the base where the pilots and navigators and other personnel hang out waiting for their assignments. This Tony McVeigh, played by Lawrence Olivier, wants to take the next test plane up, but the crew is going to be selected from lottery. So they wait. McVeigh, meanwhile, is talking to this new waitress behind the counter, or asks him, hey, there's going to be a test flight today, isn't there? Just a rumor, he says. She asks, who's the pilot? He retorts, how do I know? She mentions a crew that was lost. Mm.
1: The waitress was played by Valerie Hobson. She was also in The Spy in Black, which was also released in 1939. We'll be doing a future podcast on that. We're waiting to be able to the coronavirus pandemic mess to clear up because we want to go actually look at a U-boat in a museum here in Chicago before we do that podcast. But Valerie Hobson, she's cheeky. She's pretty. She gets what we now call I call it sexually harassed by the customers. I mean, it's amazing how rude guys were to women back then. Kind of like the early James Bond films with the cracks that Bond gives to women as well. Yeah, And it ends up she's Major Hammond's sister. Yeah, that's
0: interesting. And she does a terrific job. She actually is is pretty damn good at what she's doing. Oh, in, she, in this, she's in really good scenes. at it. She's in. She's terrific. So the, these, these crews are sitting around the coffee shop waiting to hear who's going to be selected for the, for the next test flight. And so when the announcement comes over the loudspeaker with the names that are, have been selected, this waitress is taking notes. All right. Hmm. Now we are looking at her thinking, what, what is she doing? She's asking all these questions. Now she's taking notes. She wasn't taking somebody's food order or anything. She's taking notes as the announcement's going on.
1: Could so she be the mole? So now we're thinking,
0: oh, wait a minute. The note, secret agent, some mole. Hmm. It makes us wonder.
1: The crew for the next test flight are called for duty. And when I hear something like this, I actually try to listen for the names they use to see if there's some significance to the name. Okay. Oftentimes, it's a crew member or something like that. And unfortunately, with the older films, they don't give you the, the long list you get out of today's movies in terms of who the crew was involved. So I, I looked up the first name they called was a guy named John Peters. He was the lead pilot. There is a John Peters who was appointed a member of the Continental Congress in 1774 for the formation of the United States, but he refused to take the office's oath of secrecy. In 1776, he chose to remain loyal to the British crown and fled to Canada, where he was appointed colonel of the Queen's Loyal Rangers. So I'm thinking maybe this is some homage to him from a British filmmaker or a British writer mm. And thinking, okay, the other crew members, maybe they were part of the Queen's Loyal Rangers. That's an
0: interesting I'm, thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the way I think, you know, I'm crazy.
0: <laughs> and how did it turn out?
1: <laughs> it did not turn out well, because looking at okay. the ranks of the Queen's Loyal Rangers, at least that I've been able to find, yeah. there was no Jay Nichols, R. Mackenzie, or G. Scott in their roles. And those were the names of the characters that were the next three people that were part of the crew that were called. So I might have gone Down a wild goose chase with that one, or maybe they were paying homage to John and not the others. I I don't know.
0: Yeah, hey, it's an interesting little twist, and uh, good that you pursued it. All right, so this is happening now. They they got the crew up, and Peters is the pilot. Hammond is watching the plane take off, and it's heading out to open seas. There's a ship out at sea, and it looks like a cargo ship, and it's keeping an eye on this plane, which is doing this speed test theoretically, right? Remember, the supercharger is the test. And the warning note to Hammond is in our minds now. So we see the crew on the ship now. And one person in particular is watching the plane. And he's got these special goggles on in this kind of glass room.
1: Well, it kind of looked like almost like a lookout tower.
0: Yeah, it was odd. And he's looking through this device. And it seems to focus on the plane and bring it from like two images of the plane to one, which means the device apparently is now focused on the plane. Then you see levers are thrown. And some type of electronic beam is aimed at the plane. And it seemingly burns the communications equipment. And it shuts down the engines. So the plane must ditch the test and land in the water now.
1: I'm thinking that sounds kind of like an EMP device way back then. It's hard to imagine, but an electric magnetic pulse device that would take the electronics and disable them.
0: Yeah. Again, we don't know what it is. It looks super high-tech for 1939, for sure.
1: The one thing about it is we talk about the fact that it's an electronic beam, Mm -hmm. but unlike in The Day the Earth Stood Still, there's no beam you see. You just see them. Point this thing at it, yeah, and fi- fire away, and then you see the results of it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of also the the Ray's lens, kind of. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it's like this big round thing, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yep. And it looks a little bit like the gun barrel scene in the opening stuff for the Bond films.
1: Yeah, when the when uh, the aperture closes down and opens up. Yeah, there's a point where it really. All it needs is the red blood dripping down okay. and a figure to turn and shoot at the camera.
0: All right. Maybe we're stretching it a little here. But uh, you know, when you see the film, yeah, check it out. See what you think. All right. We're going to move on. This ship is now... The plane had to go down because of this secret beam.
1: I love the way this thing comes down. So you've got a plane that's got a non-working engine. Yeah. And he lands at. I the think it was en- a
0: two-engine plane.
1: Yeah, but, okay, but he had no working engine. He
0: had no working engines.
1: So he had to guide this plane down, not into the Hudson River like Sully did, mm. into the sea, which was a little rougher, land this plane and have no debris and not crack it up. Oh,
0: come on, Tom. They selected the best pilots they had for this. So of course they're gonna be able to do that kind of thing. <laughs>
1: well the first thing they say is, Okay, get your parachutes on or something like that, or get ready with your parachutes and then they just they see the cargo ship and decide they're gonna to try to land this thing in the sea. Yeah. Which just cracks me up.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, they're good pilots. So they do land in the sea safely, and this ship navigates its way next to the plane. Then we see something really interesting. The ship deploys this crane or a series of cranes, and hoists the plane completely onto the ship, taking the captured crew below to confined quarters. Who are these guys? Now, they are speaking English with accents, and without much of a stretch, we may think they're German.
1: (laughs) So wait, Dan, you're saying that a ship consumed another ship, who went out and grabbed another ship, put it inside of itself with the crew. Yeah. And no and nobody could find that happened. Yeah. That sounds vaguely familiar to me.
0: Yeah. It it completely disappears, not only off the radar screens and any other tracking devices that may have. There there's no radio communications. There's nothing. And it appears gone. It appears to have vanished. And we know it's vanished because they sent search planes out for it. And they could not find debris. They could not find the plane. And they saw the ship, and they could not see the plane on the ship that they just hoisted it onto. Oh, now you start thinking, in modern times, in modern spy movies, have we ever seen anything like that, Tom? I'm,
1: I well, that's what I'm saying. It's uh, It feels familiar now. Back then it didn't, but it feels familiar now.
0: Yeah, because if you look... To a couple of Bond movies in particular.
1: Yeah, that's kind of where I was going. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, one is You Only Live Twice. And what's the other one you could think of? The,
1: the Spy Who Loved Me.
0: okay, right. The Spy Who Loved Me. Well,
1: really, those are the same movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But in You Only Live Twice, of course, space capsules in space are being swallowed up by another large space vehicle. In The Spy Who Loved Me, entire submarines from the U.S. and Soviet fleets are disappearing being consumed and taken within Stromberg's ship, the Liparus. Wow! So in 1939, we have the first instance of this happening, an entire plane or planes, multiple planes, being hoisted aboard a ship and then not in sight. Again, we know this. The search planes saw the ship. They could not see planes on the ship or they would have known, oh, there's the plane. No, they couldn't see it. So this is exactly like the two Bond movies mentioned.
1: Well, this is 1939. One one slight difference. In Q-Planes, they disable the plane, but they do not disable the space capsules in You Only Live Twice. But then if we go back to The Spy Who Loved Me, they do disable the submarine.
0: So, Tom, it's the same kind of thing in Thunderball. In Q-Planes, they're capturing a plane, forcing it to land and capturing it because they want to harvest out the supercharger. But in Thunderball... They hijacked the plane and landed in the water because what they want to do is harvest out the nuclear devices that they have on the plane so they could threaten NATO and try to get $180 million, $280 million, whatever they want. So, again, similar things going on in Q planes and Thunderball.
1: I like that. Okay.
0: Anyway, this is 1939. This is pretty high tech to be able to disable planes, plane engines from whatever distance they were i don't know but it's pretty cool now recall the waitress
1: that's always a good thing to do
0: yeah (laughs) she's suspicious to us because of her actions and the questions and taking notes and all of that mcvane was part of the search for this crew when this plane disappeared that we're talking about and he was the last plane to return and he comes back he lands and she comes out to the plane and he says not a trace so he's beginning to suspect that something might be up with either the airport or the plane manufacturer or something.
1: Yeah, he's definitely suspicious.
0: Yeah. And is the supercharger now in the hands of the enemy? That, that's the thought. Until Hammond, because of the note he received saying that the supercharger is the enemy's objective, he had the supercharger secretly removed from the plane. Oh,
1: so, you were saying that this is supposed to be testing the speed of the supercharger. Mm-hmm. We find out that Hammond had actually removed the supercharger from the plane. Right. Because he got that note let's not have the supercharger there if that's the thing they're. Yeah, because that, that flies was. After it's yeah. not there. Okay. Yet they reached the speed of 225, to which one of the p- people in the control room says, she's got the old time beat. Mm hmm. It- Faster without the supercharger. That's kind of interesting. And yeah. then it got the 350. Yeah. Hmm. With no supercharger. Now later we'll see a plane that's tested with the supercharger that gets the 410. But, but there, to uh, me, they're I, yeah.
0: I, you know, I, I was thinking there. I'm going to give them a little break and think. Okay, maybe it's this particular kind of plane they're using that beat the speed of that particular kind of plane before. But just. Coincidentally, but you did research on this, and so did I. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and what did we find and I out? Like,
1: and I like what you found. <laughs> Go for it.
0: No, I mean, there, some of the some of the speed tests and stuff that were done with military planes, even back then, were still secret. And so you see, you see speed tests done all over the place with with different things. So the ones mentioned in the film, we think, okay, maybe they're not accurate because Germany had a plane in 1939 with a Mercedes engine that went over 400 miles an hour. And so we think maybe this is just a reference point in the movie. But again, military speed tests sometimes were secret then and may still be secret now. So we couldn't find out all of the speed tests, but we did. We had lists of planes and (laughs) what model plane (laughs) speeds they went. Okay, this is a little too much research. But anyway, so it's maybe just a reference point. For
1: a comedy spy movie. Just a reference (laughs) point
0: in the movie. All
1: right. All right, another reference point in the movie here somebody says the bearing is 17,000 meters south by southwest and actually <laughs> there's no direction on a compass south by southwest and it just cracks me up they use that here a, a bearing that doesn't exist and then the movie north by northwest
0: 1959 20 years later
1: north by northwest doesn't exist on a compass either Yeah. So I don't know if this South, South by Southwest reference had any bearing at all to North by Northwest, but it's really interesting that neither of these movies used real directions, and that's such an easy thing to get right.
0: Yeah, but again, there may be reasons why they did it, which we do not know. North by Northwest, actually, we dug into that a little bit. We have two podcasts out on the movie North by Northwest, which is pretty fun. That's a great movie, too. So check those podcasts out in the meantime.
1: So when McVane lands the plane after the search, the waitress comes out to see him while he's still in the plane, which actually kind of cracks me up yeah. How'd you get out there. Yeah. In a moment, he discovers that she's actually a reporter and is feeding her editor the story about the planes, the crews, etc. which really kind of makes McVane a little upset. He yeah, because like now that she's
0: basically she's blowing the cover of all this stuff that's going on.
1: Absolutely, because mm-hmm. she's getting it printed. Yeah. Now, the enemy knows they don't have the supercharger. In their mole inside Barrett and Ward, he's a guy named Jenkins, he's called out for giving them bad information. Yeah, yeah, they kind this of raking
0: is, them over the coals there. The bad guys are like, Ooh, they're mad at yeah. Jenkins. Yeah.
1: And it, it was interesting the way they did it because you almost didn't catch that they were the bad guys. There's a scene earlier where it, it's kind of subtle because the accents aren't all that strong. They're, they're in that one conference room talking, and the guy comes in. He's looking at that big map, and then he comes in, and he looks at him. And the, the thing you have to understand that you weren't looking at Barrett and Ward is right at the beginning of that scene, there's a sign in the, on the wall that says the Northern Salvage Company. And okay. that kind of lets – because when I first saw the, this scene, I was like, wait a minute. That's where are, we? Who are those guys? Yeah, yeah. but the, the northern self that sign kind of tells you that, okay? So yeah, this and is the ship
0: the, was supposed to be a salvage ship or something, right? Exactly, the, okay. the SS Viking, so now working for a the northern salvage
1: company. Mm-hmm. So, Barrett and Ward, the boat, the, the plane makers, have a guy named Jenkins mm-hmm. and he's called out for giving them bad information
0: not by Barrett and Ward, but by the bad guys,
1: but by the northern salvage yeah. company or whatever I said. They actually think that jenkins is lying to them because the viking is expensive to operate and they risk their lives for nothing because the supercharger wasn't there
0: yeah no the viking they, the ss viking is the ship this this kind of salvage ship but the ship that we thought would look like a cargo ship or whatever that picked the plane up earlier and put it yeah. aboard so
1: so they're so they're they're mad thinking they're mad. okay jenkins tipped off barrett ward because he's their mole inside of barrett ward And they tell him, put yourself into a safe place if you can find one. Yeah, (laughs) I love that whenever they add that little, if you can find one.
0: But again, just kill him there. Just, you know,
1: kill him. Well, they can't kill him in the office.
0: Why not? It's their office.
1: (laughs) That's that's true. But anyway, so we figure out here that Jenkins is the mole. And these guys think he told Barrett and Ward that he double-crossed them. Mm -hmm. so he Jenkins goes out onto the street and three guys in a car try to run him down and Hammond is there and he pulls him back to safety with his ever-present umbrella.
0: Yeah. That was cool.
1: Yeah. he kind of loops him over and, and pulls him out because remember he's almost always carrying one of these things. So we have a car trying to run down Jenkins. In this case, they don't get him. And when I saw that scene, it, instantly brought me back to the Atomic Blonde, the more current movie, Where, but the villains in this one fairly early on succeed in running down their target. Yeah, well, so he, uh,
0: she didn't, uh, that guy didn't, they didn't have ha- he, they, they didn't have, have Hammond, Hammond to pull
1: to him away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. so. so Hammond and Jenkins walk into a pub and eventually into Jenkins' flat. Mm-hmm. Hammond knows that Jenkins is the mole and really wants to find out who he's working for. And so they're having this conversation about who Hammond is, and he's still being a little sly about that. And Jenkins goes to close the drapes at the window. He's there for maybe a second. A shot rings out and kills Jenkins. Mm. And it was really an amazing shot. He's there for less than a second. And a moving car comes by, shoots up at him, happens to know he's going to be there, shoots up at him and kills him.
0: Yeah. You think it would have been easier to hit him with a car than to hit him with a bullet through a window in a moving car. But yeah. they're damn good shots, apparently.
1: But this is going back to your, you know, don't do not do it out in the office. Just shoot him right now. Well, they did shoot him.
0: Yeah. I, they thought he was about to talk, maybe. And, exactly. And so before he disclosed who the organization was, the bad guys, they thought, okay, kill him. But there's confusion about this.
1: Yeah, the scene, I mean, the scene switches back to the big bosses of the on the enemy side, the salvage company, yeah. and they didn't want Jenkins shot, or yeah. they didn't want Hammond hurt either. The Baron wants to restore confidence.
0: Yeah, I didn't understand exactly what was going on there. They tried to kill him twice. Yeah. Yet they're saying, hey, we didn't want him killed, and they didn't want Hammond. Well,
1: by having killed. him killed, they couldn't find out what actually, I mean, the trail ended there. I mean, it was.
0: just poor communication with the shooters and the guys trying to run them down in the car. I didn't well, understand no, this part I, that well.
1: Yeah, I th- so to me, the Baron was like the big guy, and he wasn't in any of those earlier meetings. Mm-hmm. So I think that the lower guys were like, "Oh, take care of him," and mm-hmm. the Baron was like, "No, we want to restore confidence. We wanted to not let anybody know that we know something's up."
0: Mm, yeah, because they we still want them to, to do another test. Yeah. Right. I, I get all right, so that that's maybe why they their motivation was okay. We got to keep this on the QT here because we got a we got to still get the supercharger,
1: which is why they then had to do the next thing, and that happens in the next scene.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, so in this next scene, the newspaper articles continue to play a vital role here that she's writing and feeding her editor. Hammonds meets with Barrett. And he talks about these two planes that have gone missing. Jenkins, who sold secrets, is dead. And the secretary comes in with an article that says, oh, debris of the missing plane has washed up on the shore. This is what the article says in the newspaper. So now, wow, if this is true, then this is an accident. The planes have crashed or whatever, and... It's all accidental. There's no enemies out there trying to steal our secrets. This is yeah, what See, there's a debris Barrett's, field.
1: We found it.
0: Yeah, this is what Barrett starts thinking. So for a moment, we the viewers are wondering, debris. Wait a minute. We saw what happened to the planes.
1: Yeah, Where did the debris come from?
0: Yeah. We saw the ship grab the planes and put them aboard. So uh, Barrett is is thinking Hammond is wrong now. And Hammond's boss now is getting incensed. Wait, wait, wait,
1: wait! You said Hammond is wrong. One of the themes through this thing throughout <laughs> is Hammond always says, "I'm never wrong."
0: Yes, that's true. That's another good thing that one of the comic little movie.
1: relief things they do. Yeah, yeah, he even does a little song almost at one point.
0: Yeah, he's it, it, that is a good little thing here. So his boss, Hammond's boss, is thinking, "Okay, man, you screwed this thing up. Now you're pissing off everybody." So he wants Hammond off the case and reassigned to, I think he says Palestine or something, and, and get him out of here. But Hammond does some of his own investigating. And again, he's kind of like an agent gone rogue. Oh, <laughs> we've never heard of that before. 1939, though, we may not have. So anyway, here he is. He's, he's, he's doing his own research. And he finds out the debris that eventually washed up that there was no evidence it had been in the water long and the engines had been removed
1: yeah i love the way he says like and this knot has been cut yeah
0: he's examining the debris in person so now you think okay so now he's on to something again in between all this he cancels another date with daphne and there's our little comic ha <laughs> oh you're you're a funny guy am uh, well, and,
1: and it's funny the way he does it because he's always like he calls her up and he's like oh i'm so sorry dear yes. and then again bringing the way that men talked to women back then and i'm sure you look beautiful and stuff. Yeah. it was just the way the way he said it it was just like boy <laughs> it wouldn't work right now <laughs>
0: yeah it was seamless though his movement from one to the other and in the beginning you're thinking he's he's going to make a serious call i gotta make a call you know whatever <laughs> it's always to daphne and it's always to cancel a date or say oh sorry you know whatever uh, anyway that's our little bit of comic relief that goes through the whole movie so he he goes on an, another idea he's got another idea here so he starts researching the movements of this ss viking ship for the past several months and hammond realizes here that the Viking is now heading to the new test flight area. Yeah, he wants this flight stopped.
1: And it was really neat the way they do this because they go to where the ship's logs are, and they try to f- find where this ship has gone. And they know where other items have disappeared. You know, yeah. whether they're planes or whatever, where these other things have disapp- uh, disappeared. Yeah. Now, my qu- so they,
0: yeah, my question here was
1: what. How do
0: they know the new flight test area? I mean, Jenkins is dead. And where did they get this information? Or did Jenkins tell them ahead of time? So, I'm I'm assuming I'm, Jenkins I'm told, assuming them ahead of time. told
1: them. A, I'm I'm assuming he told them ahead of time. Yeah.
0: But anyway, Hammond is on to something here. And But so- but
1: but the thing the thing for me though is in 1939, how did they do it? They went and pulled out these log books and they're having yeah. a map. Yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. trying to say, "Okay, where this was he, they were on this date here, and this thing disappeared yeah. on the same date. Yeah, yeah, they were here, and this thing. And now, if this was in a movie, it would all be comp- on a computer. Yeah, so we would sit down in 20 seconds, you know, 20 seconds, be done with it. Yeah, here they're having to actually get out the map and try to figure out where everything is. And yeah, just, it was
0: almost like looking at a ship's log for well,
1: uh, that's what they were doing. Yeah, I, I mean, for trying, like
0: passengers and stuff like that, like yeah. we did at the uh, in Alice Island for the. My grandmother came over on a ship. We looked at all the ship logs and everything else. It was all handwritten then and stuff. So this, yeah, this this part is kind of neat in this in the movie because they're they're going through all this paperwork basically, and he's making the connections though. That home. and you're seeing
1: how they would have done it differently then, and how you would assume it would be differently done today.
0: Yeah. So anyway, he wants this flight stopped, and you've got McVeigh at the airport ready to take off, and so Kay. The... That
1: way, well, actually, that's the reporter. I don't know if we've ever said her name before in the podcast. So her name is Kay. Yeah.
0: So Kay, the reporter that we have been talking about before, she poses as McVane's fiance and g- runs to the airport and tries to get them to stop the flight. So the guy at the gate says, "No, I can't let you in. This is secure. I'll take a note to him, a message to him, or whatever." So he does deliver the message to McVeigh. <laughs> McVeigh. Well, it-
1: and they did that humorously, too, because yeah. the guy who's going to take the message did it exactly how I do that. Somebody says, you got to pass this message on. And you hear him repeating the message over and over in out loud yeah. as he's walking from point A to point B. Yeah.
0: Which, you know, okay, that that's good. So hey, he does deliver the message to him. McVeigh's not going to let anything stop this test flight because he's been wanting to do these test flights for all this time. And now he knows he's suspicious of all the stuff that's going on. So he, he's not going to do it. So he, she's posing as fi- his fiance. So he unscrews a bolt from a, some kind of device <laughs> and it looks like a ring. <laughs> and he says, Here, go give that to her. And so. Yeah,
1: and he gives them a message and the guy again keeps repeating the message yeah. as he walks backwards. So
0: uh, I'm thinking that's that's his kind of a proposal right there, right? He's giving her a ring. It, it wasn't. Now he, she's pretending to be the fiance. So maybe he's like, Oh, yeah, you should have a ring.
1: But he's like, so yet again, in another spy movie, yeah. people fall in love in thir- in a day and <laughs> get me get proposed to.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They fall in love quickly. I yes. mean, of course, everybody falls in love with Bond, every woman, but yeah. not, not, uh, yeah. but not, not in the books, actually. So we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Anyway, McVeigh, he, he's he takes off. He's like, but nothing's... he's got
1: a pistol with him.
0: Yeah, he's got. A, he took takes a pistol with him. I don't know if the other guys did or not, but he's got a pistol with him. And they're off the Welsh coast, and the Viking ship is tracking and targeting the plane. Ah, the plane gets hit with the beam again. The engines go out, and he's got to land in the water.
1: Another perfect landing on an open sea with no debris.
0: Well, this guy was probably their best of the best test pilots, Tom. I mean, come on. Of course he's <laughs> going to land in the water. Jeez, give the guy a break here. Uh, yeah, anyway, what's going to happen again? I the,
1: want him on my as my pilot on my next overseas flight. <laughs> yeah,
0: uh, the, the Viking ship hoists the entire plane aboard again, as they did before. But this time, the supercharger is fitted onto the plane. He and his crew get thrown in with the others who were captured before, and McVeigh tells the crew, "This is kind of interesting." And I did not look this up, and I should have. He said Marconi was working on a ray when he died. He could, he could. This is what he's saying. He could cut a motor car engine from twenty-five yards, and these guys must have improved the range. I have to look up that Marconi thing. So they're they're locked up. These guys, the, t- the two crews. And McVeigh leads the breakout by smashing the door with this large pole. And so I'm, I'm thinking, where was this pole before? I mean, <laughs> why didn't these other guys break out of there before? But anyway, they didn't. And there's this huge shootout, a very James bondish like shootout.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely had that kind of a feel. Yeah,
0: guns firing everywhere, people getting hit fallen dying whatever so it's an interesting part of the film and it, again very bond like i think mcvane has a machine gun he, he knocks a guy out and takes over this machine gun and he starts shooting everybody and so there's pistols firing machine guns firing people fighting hitting each other with stuff and you, you never really felt kind of like you kind of in a bond film until maybe the next one we don't know uh, you never think he's gonna die you think okay mcvane's not gonna die here either but you, you didn't know because you're watching this thing and it's all unfolding. And you think, oh, man, it's just in a series of stuff. He's not going to appear again in another movie. You're thinking, like, okay, this, he, he could get killed. But I didn't feel like he would. And so they they get the better of the crew. And they really only have a handful of guys, though. right, Tom? I mean, there's like eight of them or something. Or,
1: yes, yeah. it's two crew. I mean, it's yeah. two plane crews. So yeah. so,
0: but it wasn't over yet. And, of course, the bad guys had black uniforms on, and the good guys had white uniforms on, which was nice for us. But, you know, of course, it was a black and white movie, so, okay. It, it's, it's nice that they can identify themselves, and we can identify them as well.
1: Now, at this time, Hammond gets to the shore, and he heads out to the Viking, and they end up for- firing warning shots across the bow of the Viking. Because, remember, this fight's going on on the, on the Viking, Right, uh, he, he's on planes. some
0: kind of naval, British naval ship or
1: something. And there's a there's, there's a fight going on on the Viking itself. Right, and this naval ship is coming up to the Viking to try to see what's going on out there. The British naval vessel uses flag signals, semaphoring, to the SS Viking, sending them a semaphore message saying stop. And there's they want them to to stop. The captain of the Viking, however. He was going full speed ahead.
0: Yeah, he's still and in he, charge. They didn't get to the captain yet, or to the bridge.
1: Yeah, right. so they so they're try, They're they want to get to the bridge, but the captain's still there, and he's like, "The heck with that naval vessel. Uh, we're going to just keep going." And McVeigh and the crew finally take over on the bridge after a warning shot's been fired, mm-hmm. and McVeigh made the signal signal man on the Viking signal back to the British naval ship. You were right, I was right, Kay was right, the whole world was wrong.
0: Okay, all right, so all right. that's a powerful message, and of course stating that McVeigh and Hammond were correct about the enemy wanting the supercharger, I believe that's what he means, and that the world, maybe because they were out of the loop, of the seriousness of the Nazis or whatever, I don't know, was wrong. Eh, but Kay was right. I, I didn't get that part either. But- well, I
1: think that was just her writing about this secret thing. Nobody knew about this mm-hmm. because they didn't want it out. But right. she was writing about it, saying that there's a problem here. This isn't just planes crashing into the ocean. Okay. This something else is going on. All right. Now, the other thing I love about that line, you were right, I was right, Kay was right, the whole world was wrong, is remember we mentioned there's this running gag, that this running thing that Hammond is always like, and I was right, I yeah. was right, yeah, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. right, yeah. And, and it kind of brought me back to the 39 steps in Mr. Memory, because whenever he said something and he would answer a question, <laughs> yeah. go, am I right, sir? Am I right, sir? Like, like I, you know, I yes. know I'm right, am I right, sir? Yes. And it kind of had that feel to me. In, in the way that Hammond would keep keep going through that. Yeah. So anyways, everybody's right. They get back to shore. McVane and Kay are about to be married. And then Charles finally makes it to Daphne's. Wow. After all of this. After all of this, and he's been telling her, I need to cha- postpone our date. I'll see you this date. I'll see you that date. He finally makes it to Daphne's.
0: Yeah. And there is the ending of the movie. Don't
1: get, don't don't give it away. No, don't, but let our audience watch this to see what the ending with Daphne is all about.
0: Yeah, and what was Charles Hammond's remark?
1: I was wrong, <laughs> and he, and he says it. and he says it, and he like hooks the umbrella over his nose, and he breaks the fourth wall. It's like he's looking yes. to us the audience and says i was wrong yeah that's one of the first occurrences of breaking the fourth wall that i know of yeah we we talk about the fourth wall we've got a podcast we've recorded we haven't released yet because of the change up with the no time to die about carrie and phoebe and how those two working together might impact the bond films and with with phoebe waller bridge's fleabag where she's totally breaking the fourth wall looking at and talking to the audience yeah this is one of the first times i can think of where they've actually done that directly mm-hmm. in, a, in a movie
0: really well done and again if you look back at the entire movie the technology talk is interesting you got the supercharger which was the target of the enemy much like the lector and from russia with love or the atac in for for your eyes only
1: a classic mcgovern yeah
0: you have this device on the Viking ship that knocked out plane engines from a distance. That was the device the British should have been. The British after. should have been after. It's like, get that thing. That's but a they, pretty good They
1: action. should have gotten it if if it was on the Viking.
0: Yeah, well, they, and
1: they were they were yeah. taking the ship over. Yeah. Now they may just go, "What the hell is this thing?" and not know. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, that that piece of technology would have been a valuable asset in the defense of any aerial attacks, dogfights, oh, bombing raids, anything on the homeland. But there wasn't played up much in the movie because I mean, of course, imagine
1: how that would have helped with blitzkrieg i mean those yeah
0: blitzkrieg. i mean no one knew about this device of course until they did capture the viking ship so we're going to give them a little leeway there so now they have it apparently because they did capture the viking ship and of course the viking ship was like the spaceship that gobbled up american space capsules in you only live twice and Stromberg's slipperus which gobbled up submarines in the spy who loved me
1: so that wraps up our look at the 1939 movie, Q Planes, known as Clouds Over Europe in the United States. It's a 78-minute movie, definitely worth a watch, because it's it's got the comedy built into it, as well as the serious tone. So it's a little bit different take than some of the other spy movies that we've talked about on our podcast.
0: Yeah. Tom and I will continue to record podcasts remotely, as we're doing now during this whole COVID-19 crisis throughout the world we hope you are all staying safe as we are trying to do so we'll continue to do some broadcasts like this and stick with us and give us your feedback by sending us a message through our website click the big red button that says send the voice message and we'd love to hear from you we'll put you on our next podcast maybe
1: and if you're if you're sitting at home during a shelter at home type of a scenario during this pandemic and you watched a spy movie that you thought was interesting Go to our website, spymovienavigator.com, hit that red button, and tell us about it. Yeah, tell us we'd what you to, think. We'd we love sh- to hear from you, and we'd share that with other people. Maybe they could learn about a spy movie they haven't seen before.
0: Yeah, tell us what you think we should be doing next, too. That'd be fun. All right. This is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of spymovienavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans. Spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. Join us again. Thanks for listening.